Are you at your point where you think you've hit your bottom or maybe that there's just no way you're ever going to feel like things can change? I was like that. I really was. And I want you to know, my name is Bromo, by the way. I want you to know that there is a way out. Please join us for my podcasts. All right. Well, you look at that. Today is Super Bowl Sunday. It is the 11th of February. My name is Bromo. I am an alcoholic. My sobriety day is 2-17-09. I am not an expert by any means at all. I don't have any credentials or anything like that. All I have really is life experience, and I share my hope strength with everyone who may... Really, my vehicle for this is if anybody is on the fence, if anybody has a family member, uh, maybe you yourself think that you may be drinking too much or your addiction is running amok. Anybody who uh, wants to listen to this can say, hey, you know, maybe there is a way out. This is why I do it. And uh, like I said before, many times before, I've told my story. I finally got through my story. And my strength now is my guess. And this one that I have on today is real special to me. Her name, you want to tell everybody your name there, young lady? My name is... Nina Reba is my real name, but I, for many, many years, went by the name of Ruthie, and a lot of people still call me Ruthie. Yeah, she's a very famous, and I mean famous, personality in San Diego. What is the weather out there today? It's sunny and in the 60s and finally stopped raining. Oh, my God. We're so <laughs> spoiled, you know. <laughs> yeah, we heard your, all the rain out there, and we heard how bad it got. Didn't, wasn't there a state emergency call and all of that? Yeah, it wasn't as bad in San Diego. It was in, like, L.A. and farther north. So we just got the brunt of it. But still, it rained, like, every day for a week. Yeah, and I'll tell you, in in San Diego, where they have what's called Mission Valley, that can become a serious problem because, as you heard me say, valley, that's what it is, right, with cars running down away from everybody. Probably probably millions of years ago, it was, or thousands of years ago, it was a riverbed. Now, um, for don't many people, Mission Beach, right? Don't forget Mission oh, Beach, Mission, where you used to live, right? <laughs> okay, the now floods down there too. Super Bowl Sunday for many, uh, and for a lot of people, triggers can be anything. But for many, this is a huge trigger, and and for me, Super Bowl Sunday today is Super Bowl is super so is a Jesus Christ Super Sober Day. How about that for anybody who's been sober <laughs> minutes? Weeks, years, we all know what a gift it is, and I want to share another story with you, another gift for those. Yeah, Super Bowl Sunday, of course, Ruthie, is a... How do you want me to call you, Ruthie or Nina? Just call me Ruthie. Ruthie, Super Bowl Sunday is a dynamic... Dynamic. That's not a word. <laughs> it is not. It's a gigantic. Gi- it's a ginormous, gigantic trigger for so many people. I'm an alcoholic, and man, Super Bowl Sunday, you want to get started early, Bloody Marys and such, and get oh. drinking, and then the football game. You're, you're not a big football fan, are you? No, I watch football for the show. Right. And, oh. and especially since we don't even have a football team anymore. I know. So. Don't tell me you watch it for the pageantry of the hour-and-a-half-long halftime show with the with the oh, commercials. God, no. Okay, good. With the commercials. <laughs> no, I only, I only watch that for the show. And since the show has been over, I don't ever have to know anything about sports. I don't have to know anything the Kardashians ever do again for the rest of my life. I don't have to watch those deep, stupid dating shows. I just... Actually, I 
shut down my cable and I haven't watched TV in more than two, I'm coming up on three years of not watching TV just to get a break from my overload of, of I wasn't going to say social media, but just from pop culture, that's it. From all the pop culture we had to know for, you know, being on the DSC show. And that's why I want to tell everybody, uh, there's a show out there, there was, a very famous show. Uh, it was called Dave Schilling Chain, so they were around for years. This is where I met Ruth. actually met Ruth before I was a member of the show back in the early 90s. This is where I came across Ruthie. Ruthie, it is about 40 degrees out here with the sun shining. Oh, we, uh, oh at, least the, at least the sun's out. We are on the 12th floor. Elevator still busted here at the radio station in Mandan. <laughs> <laughs> You're the only one that laughs at that. Because you have to walk to the 12th floor? <laughs> See, I knew, oh I knew. Look, many times, God. many times during my coveted uh, 17 Pulitzer Prize winning award radio show out here, um, uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. I would say, hey, you got to come by and pick up your prize here. We're here in Mandan, which is just off of Bismarck, uh, 12th floor. Elevator's still busted. About 99% of the people go, oh, yeah, I know where that is. I'll be by in just a couple minutes. And they don't know. We're not on the 12th floor. It was just a joke. Oh. It was just a joke, which many of my jokes bomb. Uh, I met Ruthie early 90s. And uh, during my uh, relationship with Ruth, when I finally became a member of the DSC show, uh, I've said this on many of my podcasts, Ruthie, who is... An alcoholic? You don't mind me saying that, correct? No. I am a recovered alcoholic, though, is what I prefer. <clears throat> well, you're recovering. We're never rec- no, fully no, recovering. No, 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 no. If you look in the big book, okay. it says in the, in the, the part where uh, Dr. Carl Jung said, we have the ability to recover. We are reco- I'm a recovered alcoholic. That doesn't mean I couldn't not drink again. I mean, I definitely could drink again, but yeah. it is so far removed from anything in my life and in my thinking and my mind, and I've been sober for more than 36 years now, and to the point that when something bad happens, the first thought that comes to my mind is not drinking. That stopped a long, long, long time ago. Yeah. I, but there's still other ways that I can abuse myself. So, well, let's. Uh, but, it's, but it's a godsend to be free from you know the the bondage. You know, the chapter about the bondage. Yeah. It's bondage to alcohol, but I don't have that. I am completely recovered from that. That is not part of my life anymore. What is your sobriety date? My sobriety date is September seventh, nineteen eighty-seven. Good grief! I wasn't even born then. Holy moly! <laughs> <laughs> yes, you were, old man. All right, yeah. Go ahead, continue. And I, 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 I was actually um, helping a place where um, I go to paint called Art on 30th in San Diego. I was helping another alcoholic one night because he really, really was ready to go to the liquor store across the street and, and drink. So I spent a good, good 20, 30 minutes talking to him. How did you know and that? Uh, did he tell you that flat out? Did you get it out of How did you? How did I just... I'm going to interrupt you a lot, so I apologize, because oh, sometimes okay. sometimes it takes a while for you to hear. How did you okay. know he was? Did he tell you that? Did he say, hey, I'm really hurting today? Well, we, we've we talked a lot since um, or since we first met, and yeah. then it just kind of it just, just kind of came up, because he's still early in recovery. So a yeah. lot of times, you know, new people talk about it a lot, oh, more than old people do. 
And so that he brought it up so that he knew that I was a, a resource, that he could come to me if he ever, you know, wanted to talk. And so that day he did and, you know, had this urgent need to talk because he really wanted to drink. And he actually really wanted to do drugs, but, you know, the liquor store is a lot more convenient and a lot easier than to go to cop dope. So yeah. So we were talking, and when I told him my sobriety date, that was the year he was born. Ah, that's true. That's so true. And I said, see, that's what, when I was new, I used to hear the old people go, if you want to have as much sobriety as me, don't drink and don't die. All right, if you don't mind me saying, Ruthie is 93 years old. She sounds wonderful. <laughs> Damn, I look damn good for 93, don't I? Uh, no. Uh, tell everybody how you started. Was it in the family? How I started drinking? Yes, ma'am. How did you start and, you know, when did you... Uh... Yeah, my my father was an alcoholic, but I didn't even know it because he would come home drunk. The only time he ever came home drunk is when all the kids were in bed sleeping. So I never knew. Yeah. I just saw him the following morning when he was this horrible... I mean, he was kind of horrible all the time anyway, but he was extra worse when he was hung over. And I just thought he was this horrible man. And I never saw him drunk until my wedding reception when I was 19 years old. And it's like, what is wrong with him? And my best friend was like, you idiot, he's drunk. I had never seen him drunk before. So he just really hid it, you know, and kept it to himself, which, you know, was kind of nice. But in any case, I... The, the very first time I drank, I drank alcoholically. That we were, I was 16. We were going to a party, and somebody older was going to buy us booze. <laughs> yeah. And I and I chose Boone's Straw, Boone's Farm strawberry wine. <laughs> hey, all the top <laughs> alcoholics start off with that. That's the Armatus. That was the other one. That was so, oh, that stuff is so sickening. But I remember saying, I want my own bottle. I'm not sharing. I mean, like normal people don't do that. I mean, normal drinkers don't do that. Well, wait a minute. First of all, look how fancy you were. It came in a bottle. I was I was surprised it didn't come in a, in a, in a box. <laughs> Box. I don't, it was so long ago, Bromo. Yeah. I don't even know if they had box wine back then. <laughs> yeah, right. Because <laughs> I was only 16 years old. So, you know, I was in the late 60s, early 70s, whatever. Yeah. What was the feeling you liked about it? Because it just, I, you just forget about everything else and you just feel all tingly and you just feel good and you just feel happy. And yeah. it just, you know, all your cares go away and you just have fun. And that party turned out to be a major disaster, and and I, but I just really liked that feeling, and I wanted to have it again, and it seemed really easy. And alcohol, even if you're 16 years old, alcohol is so accessible and easy to get. So I just kept getting it, and then I had already been introduced to the wonders of. Um, um, Speedy Weedy. There's a store here called Speedy Weedy. What the Weedy. hell is that? Speedy Weedy. <laughs> Speedy Weedy. That's the name of a weed store here, here in La Mesa. <laughs> uh. and, but anyway, I'd been smoking weed since I was 12 years old. And I, it was just... my my. Before that, my brother was killed when I was 10 years old, and he was about to turn 12 years old. And I never dealt with that. No one in my my family ever talked about it. It's like the day after the funeral. It's like he never existed. 
and I didn't know how to handle that overwhelm of feelings that no one, it was like everybody just pretended he wasn't there. And here I cried myself to sleep every night. I just had so many emotions and feelings. I was just an overwhelm every day for years with no one to talk to. Nobody talked about it. Because in my family, the way you dealt with problems, act like everything's fine. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what? That doesn't work. Because the stuff just builds up and builds up until you're just ready to burst. So I look at my junior high school um, pictures, and I look so angry, and everyone is pointed out by a therapist, and I, I just from holding all that in. So when I tried weed, that was, I mean, if somebody would have offered me a drink at 12 years old, I would have tried that too, but it was just so happened I was offered weed first, so that's what I did. And then I just started, you know, once you do that, it was like, here, try some of this. Okay, well, here, try some of this. Okay. So I tried everything except heroin. Heroin was the only drug I ever had enough respect for to not try that I thought might be possibly stronger than me and might be something that I couldn't handle. But everything else, I was arrogant, egotistical enough to think I could handle it. What was it about heroin that scared you? The the needle part? God. <laughs> well, that well, that's one of them. But yeah. I had I had a boyfriend when I was 17 who was a heroin addict, oh. and he, he came over to my house, and he says, you know, I have some dope. Do you, you want to do something? I said, no, I'll just watch you. And so I watched him shoot up, and it just made me sick. Oh. And then the next time he came over, and I said, go to the bathroom and do it. So then the next time I said, don't bring that stuff to my house anymore. It just really just gave me the creeps. And then he... Um, ended up get he stole money just the whole typical story that I read about he stole money from his grandmother he stole money out of his mom's per, out of her purse and then he got arrested for robbing a drugstore him and some other drug addict friends and yeah. they were looking for drugs and money and what have you and he ended up going to prison and I know years later another friend of mine in the program saw him in a meeting and that he ended up getting clean and sober so it's Mike's happy end to that story but because of you gary that i was always scared of heroin and i never and there were so many other fun drugs that i didn't need that although i heard it was the best high ever and that was very tempting but when i saw the point where you get dope sick where you don't even really get high anymore i said no no there's too many other fun things to do i'll do those first so when you were doing those drugs, that's what I was going to ask you. When you're doing those drugs, is it something you say to yourself, I should try something higher, something more powerful? And then you ran that heroin by you and you said, uh, I don't think so. That's the end of that. Is that, is that, is that what's in the mind of a drug addict? Yeah, kind of like that. Okay. But, it, but it wasn't so much that I wanted to go farther and farther. It's just that. When you're around to hang out with other drug addicts that do other drugs, they're just so easily accessible. And they're often so willing to share. Here, you want some of this? Here, you want to try this? Yeah, I want to try that. <laughs> yeah. So I just was really, and I'm still a very curious person. It's part of my nature to be curious and to try things. But back then, you know, as I was interested in drugs, so I tried lots of different drugs. And weed was definitely my favorite. And I got high every day. I didn't drink every day, but I got high every day. But alcohol was kind of, you know, like a last resort. If I couldn't find any drugs, then I would drink. Plus, it was always a good combination to add 
you know, alcohol to a drug to get you higher. So, well, this is what amazes me that you, that you had such, uh, easy access to marijuana. I never saw it as a kid, except for when my, uh, mom and my stepdad would have these goofy seventies parties where everybody would come over wearing these, uh, hippie shirts. And then I would smell, <laughs> I would smell something in the corner of the uh, patio and I'd go, that's not cigarettes. And my friends and I would see it. But when I was in high school, you know, I was such a nerd. I never saw drugs. The uh, cocaine wasn't uh, run flowing freely or anything like that. Pot, definitely I didn't see. All I saw was booze. So that blows me away that it was so easy for you to have every day. That blows me away. But see, I, I'm older than you are. I was a hippie man. I was a, a lot, hippie. And a I hung, lot older. And, and, I, and, I, and I hung out with other hippies. And hippies smoked weed. <laughs> You know, we called it pot back then. Yeah. We smoked pot. We had pot. And we did drugs. And when you're a drug addict, you hang out with other drug addicts. Because yeah. you hang out with too many straight people, they question you. And why are you doing that? Why do you have to get high all the time? And you don't want to answer those questions. Yeah. And those people were just squares, and they didn't know. And it makes you really uncomfortable. So you'd, you got to a point where I just didn't hang out with people who didn't do drugs. So that certainly limits your crowd, but... That's how there's always weed around. Got it. Because drug always, drug addicts always have to have drugs, just like alcoholics always have to have alcohol. So it's always around. I saw if you a movie. Were a drug uh, addict, you would have been around it. This is what I'm imagining. I saw a movie yesterday that freaked me out. It was based on those four murders in Los Angeles in the '80s called Wonderland. Remember, with uh, John the Wad Holmes was was part of this. Cr- group this yes. crowd but they showed many that. oh god they showed many I scenes that. i saw that movie holy cow oh they showed many <laughs> scenes of dark rooms and people passing this around and just lighting up and not really sniffing yeah. up and taking needles to their skin and that's what i imagine big groups of drug addicts do they yikes i've been to I, i'm not bragging or anything but i've been to a ton of parties like that wow wow <laughs> yeah wow i mean when you're an alcoholic um in my mind, booze is easier to get, obviously, across the street, obviously, bars, yeah. and it's all yeah. legal, for one it's thing. It's legal, and, and it's socially acceptable. Let's go get a drink, where, you know, back then, weed wasn't legal like it is now. Oh, the day. I haven't been triggered, Bromo, since they legalized weed in California. And uh, that triggered me so much, because I thought, oh, my God, you know how much harder we had to work? Back in my day, we had to go and cop. It was a lot harder to get weed. Now you go to the store. What the hell? Well, here's the wacky thing, Ruth. When I moved to Fargo almost 10 years, it's going to be 10 years uh, next month that I've been out in North. Yeah, that I've been out in North Dakota. Before I moved, there were no stores in every corner that sold pot. I can't even imagine what a store looks like. What do the signs say? Hey, uh, Speedy Weedy and pot sold here. What do the signs say? Just it's a just not a distillery, but it's a what is what do, what do the signs say? I'm just amazed. Um, well, you just, have to look the next time you come here because they're all over the place. I don't really even pay attention to except Speedy Weedy. That's the only one I notice <laughs> because I think it's the funniest name I ever yeah, heard. Yeah, me too. It's and it's very clever and it's very obvious what that is. I think they just have really obvious names to them. Sounds like a porn star who's four foot five. Hi, I'm Speedy Weedy. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, it's so like if, I, if I was still doing weed, I would I would be a spokesperson for them. I would shop there for sure. Let's do a time frame here. You're you're enjoying the drugs. You're enjoying the feeling of you know being high. Um, obviously, yeah. at that point, you've got no problem at all. It's not doing anything to your life that's destructive no. or anything, right? No, just having fun. Having fun. I was, a, I was a party girl from my teens all the way in, all the way through my twenties. Right. And I actually um, came to the program through a different twelve-step program. I came through the back door, as they say. Yep. And and <laughs> so I heard about. Uh, so I met alcoholics and I met sober people in this other program that I was in. And so I just sat and listened to what they had to say. And then the more I listened to them, and then some of them invited me to go to one of their meetings, and I did. And everything that I heard, I just heard me, 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 me all over the place. Yeah. And then I and then I started dating a recovering alcoholic and realized that, shoot, I might be an alcoholic too. I went to the I went to Al Anon for a while and and all and on that I just felt like they were talking about me and I realized everybody I know is drinks and is you know an alcoholic too and thought dang this I might be one of those too so this guy that I was dating was really um the influence for me to get sober because he said he said, if you look at alcoholism like an elevator in a department store, and you're up in ladies' lingerie up in the top floor, you don't have to wait until you get all the way down to the bargain basement to get off the elevator, to stop, get off the elevator meaning to stop drinking. Right. You can get off, you know, anywhere along the line. So my story is a little bit different in that aspect that, most alcoholics that I've ever heard tell their story, they wait till they hit bottom, they lost their family, lost their job, lost everything, they're almost whatever. I didn't do that. I just I I went to a, a jazz club one night and I just loved the band and I got really drunk and really hung over the next day, but I liked the music so much I wanted to go back again and I said, but I'm not gonna drink. As soon as the waitress comes over my mouth opens and I order a Chardonnay. She walks away and I literally am looking around like, who said that? I didn't want to order that. Okay, I'll send it back when she gets here. Yeah. She got there and of course I didn't send it back. Of course I drank it and ordered another one. And But my intentions were that I didn't want to drink. The, then the next day after that, I went to the racetrack with a friend and he had this little cooler full of beers. Like, I, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. Here, you want a beer? Yeah, I want a beer. And I drank one and I drank another one until they were all gone. Yeah. And so I realized, so I tell my alcoholic friend this and he said, do you see how that could be a problem? Like a normal person would just say, no, thank you. And not think anything else of it. An alcoholic would obsess over it and do it anyway and not be able to say no. And I just couldn't say no. So I thought, okay, I'm willing to believe, you know, maybe I do have a problem. When I looked at my past, I had, I was, I was what's categorized as a periodic where sometimes I would just drink really heavily for months and months and months. And then I would feel so horrible. I just wouldn't drink for a while, but I still got high all those times, but I just wouldn't drink. Alcohol is so damaging. God, physically, what it does to you, the way it affects my health, and it just made me feel horrible. So I felt better on drugs than I did on alcohol. So, 
So I stopped on a on a uh, on a hot, what do they call it? On a instead of uh, waiting for the lowest lows, I stopped on a higher level than that. So I didn't have to crash down to the bottom. Let me uh, so let I me uh, let me ask you I something have real to go quick. To, I didn't have to go to rehab, or I didn't choose to go to rehab. I just went to meetings every day. And, and uh, the nine, let me ask you something real quick, Ruth. Hey, yeah. let me ask you something real quick. I wanna, we'll get back to what you just said a second ago. Well, what you said about a minute or two ago, when you were questioning your, kind of yourself and you were listening to people talk, to people yeah. out there that are listening to this podcast, and by the way, I appreciate you for, I appreciate you for listening to all 50 of my past podcasts. I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> she hasn't heard of any of mine. <laughs> uh, uh, is there there is a test that you can give yourself on google and it's a very easy one there's probably a, mi- a million of them but if you want to find out if you have any of these warning signs any of these signs that you that you could drink that you might be you you might drink oh. too much uh do you oh, believe yeah. do you believe in the i i think they're very accurate um oh yeah i remember i remember i can't i can't even think of one question right now but i remember I'll you give know, you. A, I'll give you a couple examples. Do you drink in okay, the morning? Good. Do you drink in the morning? Do you drink by yourself? Does it affect your uh, workplace? Uh, does it? Uh, have you lost friends or anything like that? Um, those are sample questions. There's, there's about t- twelve hardcore ones that if you find yourself, they say if you find yourself answering yes to like four or five of them, you should investigate whether you yeah. you probably are on the road to becoming one. Do you believe in that? Because I know you do. Absolutely. I absolutely do. Okay, good. And see, I didn't I didn't drink in the morning after drinking because of the the hangover, so I but I smoked weed. Yeah, you smoked well, you got <laughs> high. Okay. So so I got high. So I mean, so that still counts because uh, like a lot of us, we have, you know, we do both. You know, yeah. want drugs and alcohol, they just go together like peanut butter and jelly. Come yeah. on. Well, now this is where you left off on the elevator thing. You said you did not do a recovery. You did not go to recovery. Uh, you didn't I, go to I, home. Yeah, I did, right. I didn't go to any kind of rehab at all. I just I just got a sponsor and I went to a meeting. I went to a lot of meetings and I talked to a lot of alcoholics yeah. and hung out and hung out with a lot of alcoholics yeah. and talked about it a lot. And I also went to therapy. I was already going to therapy. I yeah. went to therapy like for the first 15 years of my sobriety because my childhood was so messed up. My my family of origin issues were, you know, plus my brother dying when I was 10 years old. Yeah, I'm sorry about affected that. Affected me. That's... So extremely affected me in ways that I didn't even know that I never really got to mourn him and feel my feelings over him. Yeah. It's, it's As soon as I started doing drugs, when I was 12 years old, smoking weed, I immediately stopped feeling reality. Yeah. I mean and and that's why I loved it so much because I didn't like the way I felt and I didn't know how to feel better any other way. Yeah. So I didn't need to. And so I had to, to early the worst thing for me about sobriety was every day I just felt like this big walking open sore of feelings of overwhelm because of not feeling anything for so long just I mean I just would numb myself. So to all of a sudden have to feel everything, this one therapist gave me this list 
of, you know, like six, eight, ten columns on a piece of paper of nothing but feeling words. And I carried that thing around for my first year because I, I was so detached from what my feelings were. I didn't know how to identify them. So every time I'd have all these feelings, I'd look at that menu and go, Oh, I think it's this. Oh, I think I feel that. Oh, this one too. Oh, I th-. and so it was kind of exciting, this process of discovery. And I learned that my feelings aren't going to kill me. I learned that my feelings are going to pass. And all I have to do is just feel it until it's done. And, you know, like when I would, like all the times that I got, I got three whole times I got let go from, uh, from radio, yeah. actually, that that was only from the DSC show. I got let go three times. I got fired. At let go. I never got fired for anything I ever did wrong, but I still lost my job many times. And and to, so to be able to identify all the feelings that happen and then just feel those feelings, where before I would just automatically numb my feelings and just have a drink and not feel it. And it took me a long time in sobriety to not hate my feelings and get used to doing that. It was really a long, difficult process, which is why I'm sure many people relapse, because it's not easy to feel all this. It's a lot easier just to pick up and, you know, and just drink and not feel anything. But that's that's part of the hard work that's really freaking worth it if you put into it. But it, it, it is hard work. And I, and I worked hard for all these years so that I know how to deal with problems now. But I also have what's called a dual diagnosis with my mental health issues because I get depression. A lot of people get situational depression, like when you lose your job or when somebody dies. That That's a situational de- that anybody can feel depressed over. But I got the kind that nothing happened. Nothing, I was three years so- sober and it was, all I felt was homicide or suicide. And I thought, okay, this is not normal. What is wrong with me? And I found one of those checklists. And it said, if you check off, yes, more than three of these, you have depression. Yeah. And I checked like all 10 of them. So yeah. I went to the doctors and I got on my very first antidepressant in 1993. Right. And I've been taking them off and on ever since then. And it's like... It, it, a lot of times in the winter it comes back, and it came back again back in the fall, and I'm just now dealing with it again to, after all these years of diligence and watching myself to realize, oh, crap, I'm, my depression is back again, because I know the signs to watch for. Like, one of them is I take things personally. Sure. You know, like being on the DSC show, we made fun of everyone and everything, especially each other. Yep, and, I do. And, and, and one day I would take things personally and went, uh-oh, that's a sign that my depression is coming back so that I could you know, monitor it from there and, and then act accordingly. So, so is that a, is that a learning process where you have to tweak the medicine you're taking? Like maybe you lighten up on this or you take more of that. I mean, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It is. But the first thing you do is call the doctor and make a doctor's appointment because you're not supposed to self-diagnose, which I did many times because I always immediately doubled, doubled it. And that's what I did this time too. And I called them and I told them because they can't, fit me in until later in the month. But that's the first thing they do, is they double your medication. But by three weeks from now, 
you know, I'm not, that's not acceptable. So I just immediately doubled my, even though I promised with my last psychiatrist that I would never do that again, because the doctor's supposed to tell me to do it, but they're going to tell me anyway, damn it. Right. I want to so, um, bring up something and we'll get back to other things, but I want to, me, I, 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 I hate when people keep doing that, but I want to interject when I first became, um, around Ruth, who scared the hell out of me, by the way, and I'll t- everybody can relate to this, and I'll tell you why, because I knew deep down that my drinking was becoming out of control every day, and, and she scared the hell out of me because I knew that she was recovering herself. She's, a, she's an alcoholic. She, she, she would talk about it from time to time on the air, especially oh, yeah. on, on the day of her birthday, uh, of yeah. her uh, sobriety birthday, and she scared the hell out of me because she once said to me, <laughs> dude, Dude, you're an alcoholic. And I would say, F you. And you'd say, Dude, I can totally tell. And I'm like, Look, you're the one that's got to go to those meetings. I'm here. I'm performing. I'm the stooge. I'm running around with a thong backwards. I remember one time, I, re- <laughs> I remember one time I had lost a golf bet and I was literally, I was handcuffed to Ruth in her tiny little traffic room while she read the traffic for like an hour naked. And I remember I had taken one of those antiperspirant, the roll-on, and I lathered my whole body with it because I, I know my I could tell the smell of alcohol was just pouring out through my pores. Oh, it was so bad. And, Holy cow. And she'd say to me, dude, have you ever been to a meeting or have you tried? And I'm like, F you. I am because I was living the life, man. Like you said, I was having fun. Most of my life was under control. Until it right. wasn't, and, and boy, I'll tell you, when right. it wasn't, it went downhill quick. Like I was, <laughs> yeah. on, I was on the verge of losing my car. Uh, I wasn't paying bills. Um, I was. Uh, <laughs> my health wise was bad because when the sh- did you ever get the shakes, Ruth? No, 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 because I did more drugs than I did drinking, so I, I didn't have that. Well, when the shakes came around and I realized they were around for good, they weren't going away. The only time they'd go away was when I'd go home and have my second pure glass of vodka. Yeah, you were, you were hardcore, man. I was hardcore. But, but, but I will never forget the day you brought in this picture that your roommate took of you, that you were passed out on your front lawn, that you couldn't even make it into the house. Your wallet is laying next to you, and your skin looked kind of purplish. Were you in your underwear or something? Somehow okay. I've never seen... First of all, no- <laughs> we had no <laughs> lawn. Second of all, oh. I had pants on, but I had peed my pants. Oh God! Third, my face, like you said, was horrendous. It was bloated, red, passed out with my keys in my hand that I tried to get into the key. Right, my roommate had taken that picture, which yeah. made the the circuit. And you saw that, and you coined me. You go, "That's the face of an alcoholic." And once again, I'm like, "I am not." Until but wait, you know, wait, but wait. Do you know what you said? You said. Maybe I need to cut back a little. Oh, uh, probably. <laughs> probably. Probably what you said. Probably. You're passed out in your front lawn. You look like you're dead. Maybe I should cut back a little. <laughs> hey, here's the part where I avoided Ruth like you wouldn't believe. is when, when I had finally told everybody, a few key, key people, that, yeah, it's time for me to go in and get help. And I did. I went to that uh, 
A-P-I-A-R-I, whatever place in La Mesa. I forget what it was called. Um, that's where I did my outpatient. That's where I went and got detox. Um, and I remember when I started going to outpatient and I started pretending like I was staying sober. I lasted maybe five days, and then I figured out you that— mean, you, mean, you mean lying. You started lying about oh, yeah. being sober. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I figured out that if I go to outpatient Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and maybe they might pee test me on Friday, I just won't drink uh, up until a certain point on Thursday, <laughs> and I'll be okay. But I—oh, gr- hey, Ruth, you were right. You are right. <laughs> Sobriety is wonderful, but I'll stay my distance so you won't catch a whiff of any vodka on my breath. But let me tell you something, what we learned yesterday. And, and you know, I lied to, uh, to her and the show three different occasions. Three different occasions. And um, it was becoming tougher and tougher to hold my lies. Well, I remember when you got you, when you lied about getting 30 days. Right. And I wanted, to come, I wanted to come to your meeting to give you a token. Yeah. And then when I got one of my sobriety birthdays, I wanted you to come to my meeting. And you just kept making excuse after excuse after why you couldn't do it. Thank God you didn't go through with that lie. Holy cow. Well, you know why, man. Because, yeah, yeah, I need to stop. But I didn't. I hadn't surrendered yet. I had not 100% surrendered yet. I hadn't taken the first step. I hated meetings. I went with my cup of coffee and listening to all these windbags tell all these stories. <laughs> and I'm like, like, yeah, yeah, your turn. Come on. When are you going to start crying? That's great. Hey, good for you. Uh, geez. I'm, you know what? I hated it because the whole thing. You know, <laughs> and I, I went to one of the coolest uh, meetings in Pacific Beach. It was upstairs. And I walked. On Cass Street. Right? Yes, I walked from yeah. my house, my my condo, yeah. and uh-huh. when I, and and of course, when I was drinking and stuff, I would walk the alleyway so nobody would see me buy booze and all that. And remember, mm-hmm. I had already come out telling everybody, "Yeah, I'm an alcoholic. I can't. I've stay. I'm 19 days sober. No, I'm not. I was <laughs> lying through my teeth, and that was becoming harder and harder. Yeah. And I have to tell you a funny story, Ruth, and you'll believe me. Um, I I think I've told you this. Um, one of my, uh, one of my first month or so at Pathfinders, which is that 90, uh, nine month program, Uh we're out on the porch, you know, like, like we do. And we're out talking and we got our coffee. Hey, and this is a, an example. Hey, did you hear about Bob? No. What happened to Bob? Oh boy. Well, he stole a bus with a bunch of nuns in it. He drove to Las Vegas and then he took the he tried to take the nuns over to a strip club and then he robbed a bank. And then this guy next to me goes <laughs> this guy next to me goes, Well, that's what we do. And I went, Excuse me. <laughs> I've never done that. That's what we do, you know. <laughs> that sounds like a Steve Holt song, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Look, I know we're liars, cheats, and thieves. And I had uh I had gotten together with Ruthie and see if you remember this, Ruth. And you were so funny because I had lied many times. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's one of the things that hurt me a lot because I hurt my best friend, uh, Dave, who's the host. I lied. I, 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 I disappeared from the show. I embarrassed a lot of people. And Dave was great. He didn't tell anybody what was going on. And I, uh, people were wondering where I went. But I got together with Ruth at a Starbucks. Do you remember this? I don't know. Tell me more. I got together with you at Starbucks because I wanted to pay amends to you. Oh, yes, yes, I do remember. And you go like this. Well, 
I kind of doubt that you're even sober now. I mean, uh... <laughs> and I go, wait a well, second. I'm getting all huffy because I'm into my, you know, I'm I'm already sober for like whatever it was, eight months, nine months. And I said, uh-huh. what are you talking about? Because remember, Ruth, it took me a while before I even got a sponsor. And it took it took the death of someone in our house to tell me, yeah. this is no game. You, you don't have a camera following you around. You're not on a reality show, buddy. You're here for a reason. You are an alcoholic, and you better get busy. And that's when I got busy, got a sober, I got a sponsor. I started doing these steps, and I called Ruthie, and we met at Starbucks. And she goes, yeah, I, I doubt if you're even sober now. I'm in fact... You probably don't even know the third step prayer. Now, the third step prayer is something we said twice a day at the Freedom Ranch. And I said, brother, let me tell it to you. God, I offer, some, I, I offer myself to thee uh, to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self uh, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. And you looked at me and you went, that's my favorite prayer. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> no, <laughs> but, you, but it still is. I love that prayer. But you had said to me, "Look, you got to pay amends to everyone else," which I which I proceeded to try to do. As some people don't want to hear from you, and you try three different times. But I have to tell you, Ruth, I thought about you in my first. Well, I still think of you from time to time, but I thought about you in my first year when times mm-hmm. became really tough. And now, as the years go by, and I see how the rewards of sobriety, which are thousands, uncount. Yeah. I mean, we can go and talk about getting your health back. We can talk about restoring your credit. We can talk about restoring uh, issues with friends and families. Uh, The rewards of sobriety are endless. And I thought about you, and I thought, you know, Ruthie was just there, not as a demon or anything, which I I saw as a demon because she questioned me all the time and scared me because I could see through Ruthie that I was a cheater and a liar. And I did not want to give yep. up what they call your lover, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I why, know it too well. Why don't you tell everybody now what you do with your free time? You are a talented painter. I am. I, well, I used to paint. I painted in high school. I painted in college and when I was young. But then, you know, a stupid, ignorant, swear word, swear word, swear word, teachers... Right. That say, you know, if you're not Picasso, you can't be an artist. Yeah. So I, I guess I listened to that enough that I stopped painting. But then in 2009, I, I, I finally um, started talking to my family again. It's like three out of the four kids in my family all turned out to be alcoholics. And two of us were drug addicts as well. Yeah. And the, my youngest sister, who is the normie, is, has been an artist her whole life, and she and I started talking, and she, we just started talking about art again, and she started talking about every painting I, I ever painted that my mother hung in our house and how much fun it was, and she said, why don't you just try it again, just, you know, for fun? And I did, and I felt this feeling. You know what it feels like when you fall in love? That's what it felt like. And, and that was in 2009, and I just started painting then, and I just kept painting and painting and painting until about maybe 2013. Then I stopped again and quit for a while. And so then by the time, and I would take, you know, workshops or a weekend workshop here and there. And so then when I lost my job from uh, 
DFC for the third and final time in July of January of 2020, just right before the pandemic. That's when I decided to be a full-time artist. Like, well, what the hell am I going to do now? I don't know. What do people do that don't work? I've worked my, since I was 16 years old, I didn't know what else to do. So yeah. I thought, well, I'm going to paint. So I started taking classes at Art on 30th that summer once they reopened after the COVID shutdown. And I've been painting ever since. And when I discovered my um, abstract animals, they the, because they were uh, humorous, I think um, my listeners, our listeners, responded to them so much because my animals make you smile. When you look at them, you have to smile. And that's how I think they remember me, because I made them laugh. And people always loved my laugh. And that's part of my legacy is my laugh. Oh, yeah. I know that you made me laugh a couple of times in here and that my laugh makes people happy. Yeah. And, and so to make art that makes people happy, but they didn't. They, and so I painted those, painted those animals for a year. And then last March I had a solo show at the Ashton gallery. And then it's like, okay, I got to paint something else. And I've barely sold a painting since then, <laughs> but, well, but still, you can't paint just because you want to sell it. You I would think competition's got to be you, fierce, too, for one thing. Well, you don't worry about that. You just yeah. paint because you love doing it, and so that's what I do. So I've been painting landscapes. I've been painting animals. I did some figure painting, and I'm just – it just makes me – it's my happy place, and that's what I like to do, and I'm retired now, so that's what I do. Bragger. There's the brag. And again, hey, maybe – Maybe a big, huge wall mural of Speedy Weedy Naked. You could paint that. Wouldn't you think that would work? <laughs> I don't um, know, but they should give me some free dope for all this free advertising, right? <laughs> Here's another thing that I never could relate to, but boy, do I relate to it now. On the show, she would ca- casually mention, and then they would talk about it, of her birthday. Not her natural birthday of her sobriety birthday and she would be beaming and she'd talk about it and man i used to think big deal whippity doodah day but i'm telling you <laughs> for anybody if you've reached six months a year two days one one token at a time you're yep. for me man the greatest day if i get there why do you always have to say that well look why are you having trouble no we say that as a defensive mechanism. We say because, of, co- of course, I'm not sure about tomorrow or Friday of next week, but today I'm, today, I'm re- reasonably sure I'm not going to drink. And I know people say, well, then why don't you go out and drink? Because I used to say that to our house manager. He would say, you know something? I might drink again one day. And I m- remember thinking, well, then go out and do it. Why are you? But for today, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to. And boy... That makes sense. And when my yeah. sobriety birthday comes around, the minute I wake up until I go to bed, I'm on a high. I'm on a natural high. And I know it's selfish, but it's... But it's a good selfish. Oh, my God. Because, there's... because, it's, because it's something to be proud of. I mean, to have your, your natal birthday, all you have to do is not die. But to have your sobriety birthday... To not drink and not use, being a drug addict, the natural state of a drug addict alcoholic is to be drinking and using. Yeah. So to not do that is a lot more challenging to, than, not, <clears throat> than not dying. So it's a big deal. It's, it, that's what makes us miracles. 
I mean, because normal people can look at that, and normal drinkers I'm talking about can look at that, you know, and think it's no big deal. But yeah. we know, we as alcoholics know what a big deal it is. I mean, because for years, I, I think I wasn't even, till I was six years sober, till I realized my life was really working a lot better. And gosh darn it, I think I'm going to keep doing this. I think this is working for me, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I think I'm going to keep coming back. That before I was just kind of, they say, fake it till you make it. Yeah. That works. Do yeah. that. Yeah. If you think you can't make it, just fake it. It totally works. I swear I faked it for six years until I thought, yeah, this is really working for me. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to just keep at it. And here I am, more than 36 years. I'm coming up on 37 years. God, yes, I'm old. (laughs) I I told everybody, and they'll hear me say this, um, and I told you just 20 minutes ago or so, how much I hated meetings, how much I hated... God, I like can't wait to get out of here. Can we hold hands and uh, you know, you know, but, say say the serenity but, prayer and get the hell out of here? But I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Ruth. When I started listening, and I started relating uh, to him, and I started uh, letting that melt in, one of my favorite guys, and I hope he's still around. He's an older gentleman who would come to Pathfinders. He was an alumni, and he would say, uh-huh. "Quote: First of all, don't beat yourself up. Stop beating yourself up." Because all of us Pathfinders sat in the corner of the, of the way. And then he would say, quote, wait for the miracle. And I used to think, well, when is that? Like some blonde is going to show up in a Corvette and hand me a suitcase of money and cigars. Like, okay, I'm waiting for my miracle. When is it? <laughs> Goofball. Ben, I tell you, the miracles happen all the time for anybody, who, like you say, who stays sober. Restoring your best friend. His respect in you, restoring family members, getting your credit back. I couldn't buy a pencil uh, Romo, 15 years Romo, ago. You, Romo, you just helped me realize that because I've heard so many alcoholics say they hated meetings. And now I know why. I loved meetings from the very first time I went. God. I think because I was sober enough that I listened. The very first time I went, yeah, and I and I heard things that people said that resonated in my life. Yeah. I heard me and all those people and all those shares. I remember just sitting there shaking my head, going, "Yeah, you know, me too, me too." <laughs> I did that. I acted. Yeah, I thought that. Yeah. I just saw me all over the place. That I just couldn't deny it, yeah. and that that kind of made me feel a part of it, and it made me feel good. And it made me want to keep coming back because they said, if you want what we have, keep coming back. And I wanted that. I really, really wanted that and needed that and craved that. So I wasn't so bullheaded or so drunk enough as you that I just I just immediately latched onto it and I knew this was the right place for me. So I went to meetings and I loved alcoholics and to this day I just love there's nobody I love more than a good hardcore drug addict. Yeah. Because I just I understand them so much and how they think and and it just, I don't know, it just makes me feel good to know that, you know, we're walking the same path together and how different our life is, especially like speed freaks. I hated speed and yeah. I hated speed freaks. Yeah. I loved, but even though I didn't do heroin, I loved heroin addicts for some reason. Yeah. So that I was friend and still friends with so many recovering speed freaks today is really funny because I said I would have never been friends with you back in the day. <laughs> right, right. 
speed freaks were so annoying. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> well, so the thing about going to meetings is this, you know, there's the ninety ninety and this and this and this and that. And, right. You know, the only person is who really honestly can drive you and and keep you motivated is yourself. And when you go to meetings, like you had said earlier, when I went, I didn't want to hear what anyone said. You know, this one guy used to come to Freedom Ranch when I was brand raw, uh, you know, a week. Uh, actually, I got in the Freedom Ranch, and I was probably had a month or two sobriety under because it took that long to get on the from the list to get called in. And this guy would come out, and he'd say, I sat in those front row, you know. I was where you are. Look at me now. I drive that big old truck. I do this. I'm a successful. Blah, 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 blah. All I wanted to hear was somebody that came out honestly and said, look, I know how hard it is. And let me tell you something. I sat in those front rows where you, where you, where you are, and I felt the same awfulness, the bottomless pit. But I'm telling you, as the days and the minutes and the seconds go by, a reward is waiting. And that's feeling good about life on life's terms, tackling everything on life's terms, and being sober. Man, you could have $2 in your pocket and go the whole day and be sober, and that's what it's all about. Right. If that's the best thing you did or the only thing you did that day, you did that, and that's huge. That's something. So what do you want to tell people right now who are – because you're almost 37 years a sober bragger. What do you want to tell people? No, you bet I'm bragging about it. Yeah, and you know what? And it's it, it's totally ego now. That it's like the few instances where I ever think about go, dropping by Speedy Weedy. I think you know what? I would have to go to a meeting and raise my hand and say hi. My name's Nina Ruthie, and I'm a alcoholic. Like my ego is like, uh, uh-uh, uh, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Plus. Before all these years, I have never relapsed once because I learned the trick that when you are triggered or whatever you want to call it now that you want to use, you want to pick up, invite that idea in for coffee and see what it looks like in your mind. Okay, so I'm going to, somebody's, so I'm going to go get some weed and I'm going to smoke some weed. Well, it's been 37 years. You know what? They have a lot of drugs, invented a lot of drugs in 37 years that I haven't ever tried. And you know what? I never tried heroin. Well, maybe it's about time I try heroin. Yeah. And there's all these other drugs that I would probably do. And so because one leads to another, to another, to another, the, you know, the gateway thing. People yeah. think that's not real for me. It is. The gateway drug was real. Yeah. Plus that it exposes you to other drug addicts to do other drugs that offer them to you. And so it's they're just available, easily available. So for me, I just see that. Once I started on one, I would probably keep going, and God only knows if I would make it back. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, I no longer have a spiritual hole in my soul, where before I walked around like there was this big hole inside of me, and I would use sex, drugs, alcohol, music, um, relationships, food to fill that hole to try to fill me up and the only thing that ever filled that hole was a spiritual solution yeah that i choose to call my higher power that we can call god whatever word you you know makes you comfortable you know you can call it the walrus if you want and that is what 
filled the hole, that empty hole, because I found learned that it was a spiritual hole, and that this is a spiritual program, and it's a physical malady with a spiritual solution. And that's the only way, because that's one thing I had a big problem with at the beginning, Romo. Yeah. It's like, oh, now I got down, I'm clean and sober, and now you tell me I got to believe in God? Yeah. Well, it's like, a higher you power in the God of your... Of, of your Choice. Of your understanding yes. and of your choosing, yes. And so, but I just kept hammering that idea, and I kept complaining about it. And so they kept answering me and responding to me that I just kept at it, and they kept responding, and I didn't let it go till finally, I don't know, it just finally kicked in, and I kept saying the serenity prayer and the third step prayer and the. And the ninth step prayer, oh, that's another gorgeous prayer. Yeah. And so I, I just kept praying. And I remember my first prayer was, okay, God, if you're real, prove it. That was my first yeah, A lot prayer. of people do that. And here's, yeah, I, I'm going to talk about a couple of things you said real quick, and then we're going to wrap this up. For one, um, not a lot of whole people make it right away. So you, you buck the odds there about not relapsing. And then you'll hear a lot of people say, hey, it's part of the process. And some of those people use that. I'm not saying as an excuse, but they fall back on that. It is part of the process, I guess. And let me tell you it's something. It's part of their, their process. Their process, not, right, absolutely. It was, not part, it was not part of mine. Let me tell you when I was bona fide sure, when I knew I was an alcoholic, but yet I was still bucking the system, I still didn't want to learn what I needed to do. When I was at Freedom Ranch, raw, dirty, campo, hot, and this guy comes in. He's just been uh, released from the prison, and he's given a chance to be in Freedom Ranch, and I'm talking to him like, what is prison like, man? And he's telling me how he used to drink in prison because they can make alcohol in there. And I actually, I actually said to him, <laughs> man, that doesn't sound too bad, getting drunk in your own cell. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. And the guy looks at me and goes, dude, you are an alcoholic. And I'm like, no, I mean, he's starting to walk away from me. I mean, seriously, there you are chilling. You know, you're having a good time, right? right? Oh, my God. Hey, I got to tell you, Ruthie, this has been a blast. We've been on almost an hour. And I want anybody out there to know, I'm telling you, you listen to Ruth and you're in front of her and her infectious laugh. And I've got a painting that she actually made for me of a cat smoking a cigar. It's on my wall. (laughs) When I wake up, I look at that. And I think of the past, and I think of the times that I battled you, and I think of the times that I said, F you, and I think about the times that I lied to everybody. And I hope in this podcast, especially this segment, that people can hear it and realize that, man, I'll tell you, there is a different world out there without the feeling crappy in the morning and feeling strung along by this addiction, you know? That's right. And just know that all these other people have done it before you, and we are here to help you. By sharing our story, our hope, strength, and experience, Yes, we can help you climb out of that hole. Yeah, we can. Because all the people that helped us, we're here to help you. And that's why I talked about my sobriety on the radio all those times, because I carried the message. And I said it in so many ways, and Romo, it was so satisfying. All the emails I got over the years yep. of people, Isn't it? Who, who, people who heard me and said, well, if Ruth can do it, maybe I can do it too. And, and, they, and they got clean and sober because of something I said. That, that, God, that was so thrilling. That says it all right so, there. 
Oh, I was telling my gratitude. Yeah, that says it all right there. I was telling my engineer last week exactly what you said. I said, I said, uh, Randy, there used to be a time when an email from someone that said, Bromo, I was there when you were walking around in your cat thong. And I was there with my mom and my mom was not feeling very well. And she smiled. And I'm telling you, you made both of our days and I'll never forget it. That used to make me all high and, and happy. And wow, what a great guy I am. Nothing blows me away more. When I get something from someone saying, Bromo, I saw you speak at Freedom Ranch when I was brand new in the first row and I was hurting. And guess what? I just reached my sixth year sobriety. And that, that, and then he, I just have to tell you, I remember what you said. Now, I'm not taking credit for his, his success, but that's the greatest no, but, compliment yeah. ever. Yes, ever. Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's like we're planting the seed when we talk about it. So even if you don't get sober today, but hopefully there's something in what we said that you can take and hold on to. Yeah. Because And that's what I did at meetings, too, Bromo. Even when I felt horrible, I would especially go to a meeting on days when I felt horrible, and I didn't want to talk to any. I hated all of you, and I didn't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> yeah. But I would go, and because I knew I was going to hear at least one thing that I really needed to hear, and it happened 100% of the time. Yeah. I could have maybe hated 99% of that meeting, but there was one thing I always took out of there that kept me going. Think, I'm still going the right way. Even though I feel like crap, I don't have to cover my feelings and drink over it and use over it, that there is a different choice I can make today. Well, I'm going to finish with this. The greatest compliment way more than any of what we talked about. It happened to me this morning when I said, hey, Ruth, you want to be on my podcast? You've heard my podcast before, right? No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> hang on, Ruth, hang on. That is Ruth. See, that's another successful story. That's another story of the the pull, the disease, the addiction. There's a way out. And it's by listening, by sharing. And I hope for anybody who's on the fence, whether yourself or a family member or someone across the street, I would be honored if you listen to any of my podcasts, unlike Ruth, who's never heard one of them. Anyway, big thanks to Ruth. Just remember, there is a way out.